Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Candace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop. And today's program is on advances or progress in the, in the treatment of renal cell cancer or kidney cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I particularly want to call out to two um, organizations that have really been very, very helpful in helping to spread the word about this program, Kidney Cancer Association and Kidney Cancer Canada. Um, but all of our organizations, of course, help to, to spread the word about the program. And because of that effort um, and because of your interest in the program, we have over 424 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Algeria, Canada, India, and Japan. So you're a wonderful group, uh, really a global group of participants on this call today. And we appreciate your spending this next hour with us to learn more about renal cell cancer. Now, this, today's program is supported by a charitable contribution from Exalexis, Inc., as well as Bristol-Myers Squibb and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program and also for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, really um, just, just wonderful. And I, I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Matthew Campbell. Dr. Campbell is Assistant Professor, Department of Genital Urinary Medical Oncology, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Campbell is going to address overview of renal cell cancer, current standard of care and new treatment approaches, the role of precision medicine, and targeted cancer therapies. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Campbell. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and it's my pleasure to, and honor to speak with all of you today. And when I talk about renal cell cancer, I think it's important just to lay the foundation of, of what I will be largely describing. And so in the United States each year, around 65,000 uh, Americans will be diagnosed with uh, renal cell or kidney cancer. And so these are largely used as interchangeable terms. Um, when you think about the numbers, around 200,000 Americans or just above will be diagnosed with lung cancer each year. And then there's much more rare cancers like testicular cancer, which I also see, which will be diagnosed in just under 10,000 uh, men each year in the United States. When we talk about uh, kidney cancer or renal cell cancer, 70 or 75% of all patients will have clear cell kidney cancer, which will largely be the focus of what I will talk about today. The rarer variants of kidney cancer include things like papillary, chromophobe, and then other much more rare variants. And we have um, expertise here at MD Anderson in each of these variants, and we're trying to discover more and more uh, treatment opportunities for each type. Many patients with kidney cancer actually uh, present uh, with kidney cancer that's diagnosed just on a CT imaging done for another reason. That's the most common way that patients are diagnosed. The reason is because kidney cancers oftentimes grow slowly. They sometimes can grow very quickly, but they grow in a space in the body where there's a lot of room for growth, and they oftentimes don't cause symptoms. Um, they do cause symptoms typically when they grow to a very large size, and symptoms that can occur can be um, back discomfort can be seeing blood in the urine, but it can be things like running a fever of unknown origin where you just can't figure out why the patient is, is having a fever or potentially weight loss as well. And so these are, are diagnoses that are sometimes tough to achieve. And so patients will often ask me, you know, how did this get to this point before anybody figured it out? But it can be a very tricky diagnosis to achieve. Normally in patients who have the cancer just confined to the kidney, uh, the chief way that we treat these cancers is with surgery. I would uh, make sure that if a surgeon is suggesting that you have surgery, make sure that the surgeon is well qualified to provide the surgery and oftentimes considering a second opinion from somebody that does a great number of these surgeries at experienced centers uh, is something that is in everyone's best interest. 
I think one of the golden rules with cancer is often seeking a second opinion and taking a time, a small amount of time to make a treatment decision is very important and can lead to, to better overall care. When we think about kidney cancer, what I do for each patient that I see in my clinic is I, I start off by drawing a sur uh, circle on the exam table. And on the top of the circle, I draw uh, three letters, VHL. And so in clear cell kidney cancer, basically this was named after two very famous scientists that were working on this a long time ago. And one was von Hippel, the other was Lindau. And so in the 1980s, when the group at the National Cancer Institute basically was working on families that have uh, early kidney cancer and a large number of the family members, when they figured out the gene that was responsible, they named it after these two famous scientists called VHL. Over time, we figured out the role of VHL, and VHL basically regulates the oxygen sensor in the cancer cell. And so if VHL is not working, which happens both in patients that have a familial reason or a genetic reason to have the cancer, as well as patients who develop it uh, by themselves, the oxygen sensor in the cell is not regulated and it starts to build up. Basically what happens is it starts uh, going into the, the brain of the cell and sending out all of these um, cytokines and growth factors and things that are essentially fertilizer or miracle growth for blood vessels. And so these kidney cancer cells are fed by a great number of blood vessels. And so the result is that many of the treatments that we use for kidney cancer are actually targeted at the blood vessels as opposed to the cancer cells themselves. And I'll get back to that in a little bit. When we think about the current standard of care and new treatments uh, for kidney cancer, it's amazing how rapidly things have evolved in this field. If you go back to 2005, 12 years ago, there was one uh, approach that was used outside of clinical trials, and that was to use a therapy that was a cytokine or an immunotherapy-based trial which, or treatment, which made patients feel like they had the flu. And so there were different forms of this, but it was a home run in around 5 to 7% of patients, but then the majority of other patients did not benefit from this treatment. Since that time, there have been over 10 approved treatments for kidney cancer. Many of these treatments that have been approved target the blood vessels, and these are called TKI, or tyrosine kinase inhibitors. These drugs include drugs like Sutent, Votriant, Enlida, now Cabozancinib, Bevacizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody given via infusion, and then there's other, other drugs called Afenitor and, and Toracel, which are targeting a different pathway called mTOR, which actually targets within the cancer cell. So the standard of care is actually in the United States for first line and if patients have the cancer spread is using a drug such as Sutent or Votriant. Both of these are oral pills that are taken uh, on a schedule and these work by controlling um, the blood vessel cells that are helping supply the kidney cancer. And, and Dr. Amishi Shaw will be describing some of the side effects and the management that goes along with taking these medications. Within the last calendar year, three new treatment lines have been approved for kidney cancer, and this includes nivolumab, known as Opdivo, which was the first uh, treatment that showed an improvement in overall survival for patients that received this therapy. And this is an immune therapy, and the way that this therapy works is basically the cancer cells coat themselves in a camouflage so that if an immune cell comes by it, it tricks the immune cells to going to sleep or dying. Interestingly enough, these immune cells use the same type of, of flag or camouflage when they get tired so they don't have to work as much. This new drug basically gets rid of that camouflage and allows the immune cells to be more active. And so the immune cell can then see the cancer cell as being a bad cell. And with doing that, that has really opened up a whole new line of treatment and that has opened a whole new line of clinical trial ideas that I believe are forever changing kidney cancer. 
The other drug that was approved soon after was cabozantinib, also known as cabomedics. And this drug is working a little bit differently than the other cousins that are oral pills. It works both on the blood vessels but also on the cancer cells. And this drug in particular has also shown improvement in patient survival. And so, and the final one is a combination of two pills. One is called Linvima, the other is as Everolimus, and that combination was also shown to be very impressive and was also approved last year. So this is very exciting times for kidney cancer. What we're trying to learn more and more is how we can tailor our treatment for each individual patient. And so what we do at MD Anderson is we consider, is the standard of care approach going to be the best? Can some patients be observed? Does every patient need to start on therapy? Do patients have a potential benefit from clinical trials? And so we're always trying to pair what's going to be the best fit for the patient and what's going to be um, the best way that we can ensure that we're giving uh, the best chance uh, of fighting this cancer successfully for a long time, balancing both quantity as well as quality of life. And so as a, as a brief aside before I, I give the stage over uh, to Dr. Shaw, when we think about the drugs that are given uh, for, that are the oral pills that are targeting the kidney cancer, Sutin and Botrian, what often happens in patients that are given these therapies that are not prescribed frequently uh, by, by physicians that are seeing many types is that if the side effects do occur, oftentimes the medications are stopped very rapidly and then the next medication is chosen. The important things with, with targeted therapies or these oral therapies is understanding what we're looking out for in terms of side effects and how we can make uh, quality of life as good as possible because what the interesting thing is is when patients do have side effects with these therapies, these are actually the patients that tend to benefit the most. And oftentimes what we need to do is reduce the dose, maybe modify the schedule, get a little bit creative, and that tends to allow patients to stay on therapy for longer, tolerate it better, and have a better chance of having a much longer control of the cancer. And so as we emerge down um, into the next generation of therapy, we're looking at how to combine our targeted therapy with our new immune therapy approaches. And there are some very interesting new clinical trials that are designed to ask these questions, and we're very excited about the future of fighting kidney cancer. And I greatly appreciate the chance to speak with, with all the, the patients and families today to go over this, this topic. And with that, I, oh. I will conclude. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Campbell. That was outstanding and really just really set the tone for today's program and really covered a lot um, in a very understandable way. So thank you so much. Um, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. So everyone, as you're listening to our speakers, remember we do have a question and answer period toward the end of the call. So basically write your questions down so we can be sure to have your questions um, when we're ready to take them at the end. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Amishi Shah. Dr. Shah is Assistant Professor, Genital Urinary Medical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Shah is going to present to you on the importance of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, managing side effects and pain, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Shah. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It's my absolute pleasure, and I'm very grateful to be given this opportunity uh, to speak with all of you today. Um, I was asked to address the importance of clinical trials, and I don't think that importance can really be understated. Um, all of the therapies and surgical advances we have today are generally a direct reflection of progress we've made through clinical trials. So the goal of clinical trials is really to help move forward the standard of care so that we get newer and better therapies and can hopefully improve outcomes more and more and more in kidney cancer and all other disease states. Um, I, I often talk about clinical trials with my patients, and I think that there are definite pros and cons to consider whenever discussing the opportunities of a clinical trial. 
Um, so one major pro, of course, especially as a provider and for um, any of you going through this or family members, supporting family members through this, is that we help move forward the field so that hopefully we can do better. Um, from a patient standpoint, it also offers, clinical trials offer earlier access to new medications. So for example, uh, Dr. Campbell um, spoke briefly about drugs that have come out in the recent past, cabozantinib, lenvima, uh, nivolumab. Those were all available to patients on clinical trial before they became FDA approved to be used in a broader setting. So when patients are on clinical trial, they often do get earlier access to promising medications. One of the concerns that many of my patients will express is that they're worried they would get on a placebo arm. Now, clinical trials can, can come in many different flavors, and so it's under, important to understand the specifics of the trial that you're considering. Um, so some trials are single arm, meaning everybody gets the same treatment no matter what, and there may be different doses involved or um, different vari slight variations, but everybody may be getting the same medication or treatment. Other studies are multi-arm studies, meaning some patients are randomized to one, one treatment and other patients are randomized to a different treatment. Um, and I can assure you that ethically, legally, in this day and age, there is no such thing as a real placebo arm. There's no arm in which patients are given substandard therapy. So um, if that puts anyone at ease, I would be very glad because um, at best, if you're offered a clinical trial with a new treatment, the comparator would be the current standard of care. Um, clinical trials are done in a very monitored setting. And so generally, any place that offers a clinical trial is going to have multiple rounds of regulatory groups that look at all of the safety and um, sort of uh, work that goes into the clinical trial. So it goes through multiple review boards and everyone reviews, okay, what's going to happen if these side effects occur? How are they going to be managed? How often is this patient going to be monitored? What's going to be used to monitor? Is it blood work? Is it imaging? Um, and how do we troubleshoot issues that may arise? And so everything is done in a very, very tight setting. And I actually think that in many ways, on clinical trial, people are, people are monitored so closely that we pick up more things than we may otherwise in a, in a generalized setting. Um, so I do think it also offers the patients to just be very, very closely monitored. Um, now the cons are sort of things to think about as well are just sort of logistical issues. A lot of times clinical trials do involve more back and forth to the doctor. You might have to come to, you know, every two weeks instead of every month. Or um, It's important to have a good understanding of the logistics involved just to see if that's something that can work with um, your life and kind of all the details that are a part of our working day to day. Um, there's also generally relatively strict screening processes and eligibility criteria. And so um, if your physician says, you know, we'd like to consider you for a clinical trial, there's usually still work that needs to be done to see if patients meet the exact criteria. Usually all trials require certain kidney function or liver function or cardiac function, and there's often workup that needs to be done to see if someone is really eligible for a study or, um, you know, do they meet all of the appropriate criteria during the screening process. So um, if offered, it's certainly something to think about, but just be aware going into it that further workup and screening may need to be done before it's for certain whether that's an option or not in your plan of care. Um, I think, uh, you know, um, people, there are clinical trials that go on all over the country, and one of the resources I would point you to if you would like to read up more about, more about it for yourself is um, the NIH or NCI website will have a um, full listing of all of the clinical trials that are done in this country, and so you can look through that. I think it's clinicaltrials.gov is just the easy way to find it, and you can always screen through by cancer types such as kidney cancer to see what some of the, the new and innovative things go going on at different institutions are. Um, to switch tacks a little bit, I was also asked to cover managing side effects and pain. And this is a this is a really big thing that both Dr. Campbell and I cover on a day-to-day -day basis in our clinics. So one of the first conversations I have with my patients when I see them in clinic is sort of a very thorough discussion on what the intent of our treatment is. And this is a really important question because there's two major varieties um, in this setting. Are we treating something with curative intent or with palliative intent? And what that means is if we're treating something with curative intent, we're saying, 
okay, the goal of this treatment is to make this cancer go away completely so that it never comes back, hopefully, to cause any harm to you. That is a different discussion than the palliative intent where we say, okay, this cancer is no longer considered curable, but any treatment we offer you is with the goal to maintain a good quality of life, to help alleviate any pain or side effects you may be having from the cancer, and to help your longevity, to help prolong your life. And so when I think about managing side effects and treatments in a patient, it's all in the framework of what is the intent of our treatment. In the palliative intent setting, particularly when we're treating with the goal of prolonging someone's life and making them feel better, quality of life becomes a very, very important topic in that setting. Um, we all take that very seriously, knowing that if something is not curable, our, our the most important part of our job is to make sure that we are maintaining a good quality of life for our patients. So I'll speak briefly about some of the common side effects that we deal with, particularly with tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapies. These are the oral therapies that are used most commonly in patients with advanced kidney cancer. Um, we, you know, as Dr. Campbell mentioned, we use surgery for early stage disease, um, but many of these oral medications come into play later for patients with advanced disease. So. Um, one of the common side effects we deal with is that people feel quite fatigued. That's multifactorial. The, the cancer itself takes a toll on people's energy. The medications can cause further fatigue. And the more fatigued we are, the less we feel like doing anything, and we, the more deconditioned we become. So it becomes a vicious cycle. They've looked at many different agents, um, medications, interventions for cancer and chemo-related fatigue, and really the only one that's been shown to truly be beneficial is regular exercise. So I encourage my patients that it's counterintuitive, you know, when you're not feeling well, the last thing you want to do is get up and go. But even if it's just five minutes, get outside, get some fresh air, take a short walk, get some sunshine, and that will do wonders for your fatigue. Um, diarrhea is another very common side effect that we treat with these tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And we can certainly go into more detail if needed during the Q&A, but um, we have many ways of sort of tempering this. I put my patients on probiotic agents. Um, we can tweak their uh, medications such as Imodium to help deal with diarrhea. We often use Metamucil as a bulking agent rather than for truly for constipation. Um, and so there are many ways to sort of temper that diarrhea that may come with these medications. We monitor our patients very closely for high blood pressure on these therapies. And again, as Dr. Campbell mentioned, patients who exhibit high blood pressures and side effects on these treatments, it also sometimes often is an early indicator that the medication is working well. And so we just need to find a way to monitor their side effects and control them so that hopefully we can gain those effects of the therapy working. Um, we have a nutritionist on the line who's going to go over nutritional concerns and tips, and so I will defer, you know, decreased appetite and issues with nutrition to her, but I do encourage my patients to eat small, frequent meals on these therapy because that can often be more tolerable than three big meals a day. Um, and then in terms of pain, um, you know, your doctor will likely do a very thorough assessment on the characteristics of your pain. One of the big things we ask about is the frequency of your pain. How often are you needing pain medications? Where is the pain located? What is the quality of the pain like? And that can help us to decide which medications we use. Um, we often use um, short-acting versus long-acting pain medications depending on how frequently someone is truly having pain. So if someone is in pain around the clock, well, we definitely feel they should be on a long-acting agent where something is in their system all the time to help to keep that pain under control. And then we might supplement that with a shorter-acting medication to use in between for breakthrough pain. Now, with all pain medications, it's really important to manage side effects such as constipation that come with it because pain meds alone, while they can be helpful for pain, carry their own side effects. And so we wouldn't want to make anybody more miserable by doing that. And then finally, as Dr. Campbell mentioned, we often make dose adjustments on these tyrosine kinase inhibitors and even um, other agents that we use in kidney cancer because at the end of the day, um, you know, the efficacy of these drugs is not necessarily um, diminished by small dose adjustments or schedule reductions. And if it becomes much more tolerable and helps the patient to be on them for longer, it's actually beneficial in the long run. Um, the last piece of my discussion is really about communication um, and about communicating with your care team about quality of life concerns. I always tell my patients that 
um, it's a very two-way conversation and a very two-way communication between your care team and themselves. It's not a one-way street. Um, so a working active conversation doesn't mean you check in with your doctor once every three months when you go in for CAT scans. It means that you're keeping us posted on things that are happening. So if you're having diarrhea, we want to hear about that you know, in week one rather than in week 10 so that we can help to um, adjust whatever we need to to make that more tolerable. And also, nothing is a one-way street in the sense that if something really isn't working well or not, you know, um, compatible with your quality of life or um, side effects, we can always change gears. There are always other options we can think about. Um, one of the final things I'll mention is um, I always, no matter where a patient is in their cancer spectrum, talk about the things that they should be aware of just for long-term preparation. It may be that patients have an excellent prognosis. It may be that they don't have quite as excellent a prognosis, but it's always good to be prepared um, and talk to your doctor about things like medical power of attorney, um, resuscitation status, living will, just so that you and your loved ones are prepared in the event that an emergency ever arises. Um, and so with that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Mesner and happy to take any questions during the Q&A. Thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you very much, Dr. Shah. That was outstanding. I um, really covered a lot of important topics for all of our participants and really did it in a very expert and a very caring way. So thank you so much. And I know there are questions for you during the Q&A. Questions are actually starting to come in from our online participants. So just remember, just you can post your questions as you begin to keep track of your questions. We'll be sure to get to your questions before the call is over today. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is a supervisor of clinical nutrition. She is a dietitian by training, and she is with the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Bairden is going to address nutritional concerns and tips, always of great concern to everybody on the call. So I'm going to turn this program over to my colleague, Ms. Diana Bairden. Thank you, Carolyn. And I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of renal cancer. Um, <clears throat> eating well during your treatment can provide you the energy to do the things you enjoy as well as maintaining your weight. Um, patients who maintain good nutrition tend to tolerate treatments better and have faster recovery from side effects. Um, some common side effects, we've heard about a few of them already this morning, um, are nausea, vomiting, maybe a decrease in appetite, um, changes in taste, diarrhea, constipation, um, fatigue. And oftentimes these um, can start posing as barriers to meeting our, the nutritional goals. So constant communication with your healthcare team related to such challenges are absolutely um, imperative. The sooner that you talk with your team, the sooner they can work on um, addressing those, those issues. In general, um, a plant-based diet is the most ideal for prevention, um, of cancer during the treatment of cancer and in survivorship. This translates into having about two-thirds of your plate um, come from a plant-based food. And these include things like whole grains, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. Um, plant-based foods provide us antioxidants, phytochemicals, and fiber. These are very important for our bodies to function appropriately. And the other third of our plate um, needs to come from a lean protein. Things like wild-caught fish um, or other wild-caught seafoods, poultry, and beans. Protein is important because it's the building block for healing, and it's essential for us to get um, through treatment. We need to make sure we have enough protein in our diet. Now, this might be something that's adjusted based on your individual needs, so, um, so talking with your healthcare team about that can help address those questions. Um, fresh or frozen are ideal when it comes to our plant-based foods, eating a variety of colors. Um, the color of a food tells us a lot about the nutrients in the food, and so the more color variety, the better. Um, during your treatment, there may be a need for you to take a supplement. We heard um, just a minute ago from Dr. Shaw talking about possibly probiotics or other medications to help um, assist with managing the side effects. These are going to be based on your unique needs. So talking with your healthcare team is important before you start taking um, any additional supplementation. Um, there may be times during your treatment that you have a modified diet. 
um, and, and it may not be forever. So, um, but talking with your, your team and understanding your unique needs is the most important. Oftentimes, hydration is forgotten, and dehydration can actually um, increase um, the feeling of nausea, fatigue. It can make you feel dizzy and just tired. Um, fluids are anything that's liquid at room temperature, things like water, juice, sports drinks. A general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid per day. Um, this may um, increase or decrease based on your needs, um, but talking with your team about that is very important. If you are experiencing side effects, keeping a daily food record, things that you're eating and how you feel afterwards, very, very helpful. Um, it'll make you aware, number one, of how often and how much you're eating and the types of foods you're eating, but it'll also help your healthcare team better serve you. A dietitian um, is, is part of the healthcare team and can provide some not only direction with diet and food choices, but also things like your calorie and protein goals, your fluid goals, and again, modifying your diet if needed. You know, um, when you're going through treatment, some of the medications that the doctors have mentioned today can cause their own unique side effects, and they need to be handled through talking with the team. Sometimes managing them um, requires a different route than you may think, so um, just constant communication is the most important thing. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop, and I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Diana, Ms. Verdon. That was really um, excellent and lots of excellent uh, tips for people, and I know people always have questions about um, diet and nutrition, so I'm sure we'll have questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edlund. Ms. Edlund is an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and she is our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And Ms. Edlund is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Edlund. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I would like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with renal cell cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online support groups. In fact, we offer an online group specifically dedicated to the needs and experiences of kidney cancer patients. You can register on Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This and our other groups in general offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we have learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. So please do consider contacting us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. 
Uh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Evelyn. Caroline, that was outstanding and, uh, and a nice resource for everyone to have. I hope that everyone will take advantage of that, that resource. And now we have time for questions. I really want to thank our speakers for giving us lots of time now for questions. And I'm going to ask uh, Candice to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And she's brought all of our speakers on board now. And um, I see we have some live chat features, but we'll see um, after Ca uh, Caroline explains. I'm, I'm sorry, after um, Candice explains how to queue up for questions, whether we have some telephone questions as well. Um, Candice? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is now open. Thank you. What is the overall prognosis once cancer or renal cancer is diagnosed? Is it the death sentence it once was thought of? And what are the long-term side effects one lives with after conquering kidney cancer? Excellent, excellent questions, um, Emil. And I'm going to ask Dr. Campbell if he would start with that question, just in a general way, of course, um, and um, just to give some um, general guidelines. Yeah, also, I, how people might get those answers from their treating healthcare team. Yes. Yeah, this is a great question, and this is a, a question that weighs so heavily on every patient and every patient's family's mind. And what I can tell you is, um, even in the era before we had all these new treatments, we knew that there were groups of patients whose prognosis could be separated based on clinical features and laboratory features. And what we have seen over time is we've been able to continually improve outcomes for each group of patients from the, the patients that we look at as having the very best prognosis when the cancer is metastatic to the patients that previously had the very worst prognosis when the cancer was metastatic. But what I, will, what I caution everybody is that if a doctor ever looks you in the eye and says that you have 24, 36, 52 months to live, none of us have a crystal ball. And the important thing is where that physician is gaining that information is from what the, the patient who is the very median, meaning they're at the 50% point on survival curves from previous clinical trials or large data analysis rests. No patient is likely to be the number 50% on any survival curve. You are yourself, you are your individual person. And what we know is that patients that are feeling well, we know that when patients are tolerating medicine well, and the medicine is working are much likely are much have a much better prognosis than patients who feel very poorly, tolerate medicine poorly, and are getting very weak, spending the majority of their time in bed. And so it's an evolving question. But what I can say is I've had patients come to my clinic extremely weak and frail from what the cancer has done to them over a very brief period of time. And we have turned around a number of those patients. And so while it's not certainly always possible with the development of these new therapies, I'd say there is considerable hope in the fight against kidney cancer. And I believe we truly are getting better with each passing month, each passing year. Very important for everyone to hear because I think many people's uh, experience with all cancers, and particularly with kidney cancer as well, is that you you connect it to someone that you may have known in your family many years ago who had uh, that particular type of cancer. And of course, the world keeps changing. And one of the main reasons we offer these programs is we want you to know the new, what's out there that's really new and how has how that field has changed. And I think, Dr. Campbell, thank you for your response to this question because it's an important one. I think I think that um, we can't assume that what happened 10 years ago, five years ago, even a couple of years ago, is what's going to happen now. Is that, is that, is that a, a fair thing to say, Dr. Campbell, or is that... Uh, is that I think absolutely, and I, I, I think, you know, it, what we have learned and what the term that you may hear is this heterogeneity, meaning that, you know, patients are very different. Even within a patient's body, their tumors can be very different in different locations, Kidney cancer, to me, is one of the least predictable of all cancers, and every patient truly needs to be treated as an individual, 
and every patient has we have to adjust how we do therapy, how we think about each patient truly on an individual basis. We use the evidence that we collect on clinical trials and from other research, but when a patient's in front of you, that is the patient in front of you. It's not uh, all 100 patients otherwise treated elsewhere. Excellent. Thank you. And we have another question. I'm going to direct this question to Dr. Shah. Um, I work, this is from one of our online participants. I work with patients who are on dialysis. One side effect I hear often with patients who are, un, who are going through treatment for cancer is dry mouth. Dialysis patients are limited to one liter of fluid per day. Can you give some tips for helping this, with this side effect? Dr. Shah, could you address this question? Again, in a general way that might be helpful to this uh, person asking this question. Uh, sure, sure. Thanks very much for um, that question and a, a very good one. Um, I So I refer patients, um, there's an over-the-counter um, biotin-type mouthwash, and actually dentists are a really good um, source of information in this setting too, but um, there is an over-the-counter biotin-type mouthwash that can be helpful. Um, the other thing I'll have my patients do is to use just um, little swabs. You can often get these at the doctor's office um, and or ask at a medical supply store even. Um, they're little sponge-type swabs that you can use to just sort of coat your mouth. Um, candies like lemon candies and just uh, you know little drops to suck on can help as well with that feeling of dryness and then often um, these medications do cause not only dryness but some irritation and even ulceration of the lining of the mouth in that setting I find salt and soda mouthwashes to be quite helpful too um, it's just a simple home remedy where you take warm water um, half a teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of baking soda, and you just sort of swish that around your mouth and spit it out, and that really helps to kill bacteria and protect the lining of your mouth from getting more ulcerated. And so I'll have my patients keep a glass by the sink, and every time they go to the bathroom, wash their hands, do that to help protect their mouth. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and we have um, another telephone question, I believe. So, um, Candice. Um, and our next question comes from Jack M. Your line is now open. Thank you. Uh, it's an excellent session. So this question is for the medical oncologist. What are the reasons, other than coincidence, for uh, secondary genitourinary cancers? For example, I have a history of prostate and RCC in addition to melanomas. Uh, what is the process, and how does one find out this kind of information? Thank question, you. Jack. Thank you. Thank you very much for that question. The question is actually, Dr. Campbell, do you want to start with that question? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. We we do see that there are patients that have um, a predisposition to having multiple cancers, and so sometimes that can be a genetic um, concern. So you are, you are born uh, with a predisposition to develop cancers, and so sometimes when patients do have multiple cancers, we will set them up with a genetic counselor to help them go through that screening process to try to figure out if there is a need to do testing of both the tumor, which tests for what we call somatic mutations, meaning mutations that we can see with the tumor, and then trying to see if they may have a germline mutation, which means a, a mutation that we see in every cell that we typically get from either a blood draw or from a swab of the cheek. Um, and so that, that gives us some additional information. That certainly is not the case in all patients. And as what we know is that as patients age, if men live until they are in their 80s, their chance of developing at least low-grade prostate cancer is nearly 100%. That typically is a cancer that men live with, not die from. And this would be something that many men would never even be diagnosed with unless they were having their prostate frequently biopsied. Melanoma is tied, and I'm a personal melanoma survivor, but melanoma is tied to having uh, typically excess sun exposure. Certainly there are different varieties of melanoma, but significant UV exposure in one's lifetime, tanning beds in particular are a very bad source. Um, but sometimes patients can have different cancers for different reasons. And so while I can't speak to your case individually, um, I do think discussing this with your doctor, asking if a genetic counselor makes sense or doesn't make sense. Um, and then what we do see, and especially in my men with uh, testicular cancer and patients that I take care of with bladder cancer, um, 
there are with with treatment with with potentially chemotherapy a risk for secondary cancers. Certainly, radiation can increase the risk of secondary cancers, and sometimes environmental exposure. So, patients that smoke have an increased risk of kidney cancer, bladder cancer, lung cancer, and a whole host of different cancers. So, while it's a long answer, there can be a variety of different factors that play a role. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope that's helpful to you. Um, excellent question, Jack. Thank you. Um, we have another question from one of our online participants um, for Dr. Shah. Um, what is, what is, who, what, I'm sorry, what is or is there a role of kidney transplant in kidney cancer with the mandate of being cancer-free for a period of time before transplant? Um, I, I'm going to ask for some clarification on that question, if, if the participant is able to clarify. Um, in general, kidney transplant is not one of the ways in which we uh, treat in kidney cancer. So I want to make sure I understand the question clearly. Generally speaking, we do not do any organ transplant in the setting of active malignancy. Um, kidney cancer itself, if the kidney is removed as a part of the cancer treatment, um, generally the surgeon pays attention to what is the patient's kidney function before removal of that kidney. Are they going to be able to suffice on the one remaining kidney? Or do they can they potentially consider a partial nephrectomy um, so that they can preserve some remaining function in, in the diseased kidney? Um, and so doing a kidney transplant in the setting of active kidney cancer is not usually indicated. Um, I guess if I'm misinterpreting the question and they're asking if they're cancer-free and because of diminished kidney function um, over time they become a transplant candidate after five years disease-free, I would urge them to talk with their doctor about um, the kidney transplant program. There are many different factors that go into um, the transplant screening process as well as eligibility. Um, if they're truly cancer-free five years out and considered cured, then at that point, it's not necessarily a contraindication to receive a solid organ transplant. Actually, the, because it's an online question, the person asking the question said, this is what, just a quote, this is the answer I was looking for. So thank you very much, Dr. Okay, great. <laughs> Perfect. So that, that's, um, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is a wonderful both team of speakers as well as our our participants asking such really great questions. Um, there is a question now for um, for Ms. Bearden. Um, in the case of nutrition in a patient that has lost weight and continues to lose weight but maintain a BMI in the, in the morbid obesity range, what are the key and immediate nutrition recommendations to maintain nutrition status to tolerate therapy? And I can read that again if it wasn't clear. Um, would you like me to read that again, or is it? No, I think I, I think I got that, Carolyn. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, part of the nutrition assessment is um, a nutrition-focused physical evaluation. And so, some things that we typically look for um, in that evaluation is the type of um, loss that's occurred. Is it muscle mass? Is it fat mass? Um, and so that's a head-to-toe physical assessment the dietitian does at, as a baseline and then throughout treatment. Now, if somebody's starting to lose weight, some key things to look for is the rate of weight loss, um, how, um, what um, energy substrates are depleted or being um, seen as being depleted, and based on the individual's own needs, how best to kind of intervene with that. So it the rate of weight loss um, will be a big factor for that. Um, we overall want the patient to be healthy. And so going towards a healthier weight is um, potentially part of that plan. It's just the rate at which you get there can impact if you're losing a lot of muscle mass. And that's what we don't want to have happen because our muscle mass um, is there for our endurance and our ability to get up and do the things that we enjoy. So an assessment would be potentially starting with a food recall. I'm asking the patient to write down how much they're eating of different foods. Are they getting in the variety of foods and the important components um, to meet their nutritional goals? And then comparing that with their nutritional needs. And so... Um, it's, it's a kind of a big picture 
on when you're going to make an intervention, a lot of different factors. But looking at the physical assessment, evaluating the patient's intake, um, comparing that to the patient's estimated needs, and then overall their quality of life and their treatment intervention um, would then help develop a plan. So um, I know that's not an exact answer to give you a specific plan per se on exactly what to do, but I think it's important to kind of maybe approach it from that perspective with, you know, the healthcare team and start keeping a diary and start looking at what the patient's eating. A lot of times what will happen, interestingly enough, when patients um, come across with a diagnosis of cancer, they're very much... um, they're very much engaged and want to start making healthy changes. Sometimes those healthy food changes result in lower calories, but then still getting in the nutrients they need. So that's where it can be a big question mark as to, is there anything initially that needs to be done differently or if what they're doing is okay and this is, this is a gradual weight change. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we have another online question Um, And this question is for Dr. Campbell. I was recently diagnosed with kidney cancer. Can kidney cancer surgery lead to chronic kidney damage of the other kidney? So if you could comment on that. Again, that would be a general answer, of course. um, That's a great question. So um, what I would say is that typically the answer to that question is no, though if there are surgical Uh, complications uh, or infection or other issues that could potentially harm the other kidney, um, you know, that that would be a possibility, but typically the answer is no. Patients' kidney function actually tends to worsen just because you're dealing with one less kidney if the entire kidney is removed. And so the question that is always presented at our national conference, and I'm not a surgeon, so I can't speak exactly to Um, who benefits from which type of surgery, but there is always a push to see can you spare normal kidney um, at the time of the initial surgery or do you have to remove the entire kidney? Um, Certainly some community urologist, it tends to be a much quicker and potentially safer operation initially if the entire kidney is removed, and that can typically be done laparoscopically or robotically, but there are times when the consideration is needed, can you spare a good portion of the of the kidney uh, where the tumor is growing? And that's, again, where, you know, talking to an expert who deals with kidney cancer surgery frequently is always a really good idea. And so I highly suggest that whenever I have a family member or friend discuss a, a, a patient, uh, you know, potentially that may be from a far distance newly diagnosed, that's always one of my initial recommendations is have another set of eyes take a look with a recommendation for what type of surgery would be required. Excellent. And actually along those lines, I'm um, actually um, another question just came in. Um, actually, so I'll give this question to Dr. Shah. It is related to what you've just discussed. Um, should I get a second opinion before starting my treatment? Uh, this kind of a question that comes up in a lot of our calls. And, and Dr. Shah, if you could address that, um, that would be, I think, helpful. Uh, sure. You know, the way I see it, it never hurts to get a second opinion. Um, it It's always good to have a second pair of eyes look at something. Sometimes somebody sees it with a fresh eye and may have a different option. They may be in a place where there's a, a different treatment option available. Um, they may put together something. And it may be that they completely agree with the first opinion that, that was said. But I think either way, there's something to gain from hearing a different perspective. Um, cancer treatment is never really black and white. As much as we'd all like to think there's one perfect answer in every case, that's that's rarely true. Um, it's usually a very nuanced discussion. And so, um, you know, when there's not one right answer, it always helps to know, okay, what is another way of looking at it? What are the other options? And what might work better with my personal scenario, looking at into all the details of my case, um, what may be the better fit? Excellent. Thank you. And uh, we have a question for Ms. Evelyn, um, actually. Um, and the question is, uh, the comment is, I am alone, no family or friends. How do I get help when I really have no one, especially when I'm very tired and fatigued? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I think that's something that I'm sure many people can relate to. 
um, you know, the truth is, um, you know, getting a diagnosis like this can feel very isolating, and so it is important to reach out for support. Now, um, just to describe some of Cancer Care Services, uh, we offer individual telephone counseling with oncology social workers, and that can provide a space where uh, you can share how you're feeling, have someone as a sounding board, um, a listening ear to hear all the, the decisions that you're, you're, you're weighing, um, hear the ways in which your life has been impacted by the diagnosis and get some support and some ideas. And I think support groups are also a wonderful way to connect with community and people who really understand uh, some of what you're experiencing. Uh, so, so again, Cancer Care, uh, we offer both telephone um, and online groups and then also face-to-face groups for, for those folks who are within uh, commuting distance of our offices in the Northeast. And I really think that can be just a lovely way to um, connect with others. Um, there's a lot of comfort and empowerment in, in joining a community of, of others who can relate to what you're going through and, and a, a, get a space to, to share and discuss questions, concerns, and also medical information. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so for many of you on the call who feel that way, and, and people often do feel that way, you do have a, a resource, do take advantage of it. And um, we're also very good if, if for some reason you wanted something very close to home. We, also, we, ha- we have an extensive uh, resource list that we can help to connect you with places that we really know work and provide help as well. So. And we have another question, uh, which actually may be our last question, actually, um, and this, I'm going to give this question to Dr. Campbell. Um, does kidney cancer put me at risk for complications such as liver function, abnormalities, or bone problems? How can I avoid such complications? That's a good question. And so um, what I would say is if you have kidney cancer that is surgically removed and that causes um, a significant deterioration of the kidney function, we know that impaired kidney function increases the risk for a variety of different problems, including cardiovascular problems. You know, potentially it does increase the risk for osteoporosis and other issues, uh, can increase the risk for having lower uh, blood counts. Treatments for kidney cancer have the potential to cause uh, some degree of liver toxicity or liver harm, and we often closely monitor uh, the liver numbers and all the labs during the therapy. But I think, you know, getting back to what Dr. Uh, Shaw had said earlier, diet, exercise, sleep, stress management, trying to minimize um, uh, other health conditions is absolutely crucial. And what one thing that I would caution everybody listening to this today is the FDA put out a cease and desist letter earlier this week uh, to companies that are manufacturing a lot of different herbal supplements with claims that they have very high cure rates of cancer with, with truly no actual evidence to back up their claims. And many herbal supplements and others are not regulated by the FDA Anything you put in the body has to be metabolized, oftentimes through the kidney, through the liver, and they have a potential of causing a lot of interactions with drugs that are prescribed by providers. So I think, again, having that open dialogue with your doctor about what you're taking, if you are taking any herbal supplements, what those are, and if there are major changes with the liver or the kidney function, potentially stopping those or holding on those entirely is an excellent idea. Thank you very much. That was excellent. And I, I want to thank our speakers. You've been extraordinary today. This is a great, great team of speakers. I want to thank our participants today who really asked really excellent, really extraordinary questions, and both on the telephone and, on, and online as well. Um, I actually, first of all, want to address anyone who didn't get their question answered or actually thinks of a question after today's program. It's really important that we connect you to resources to get your questions answered. So for anyone who has a medical question that they didn't get answered today, of course your healthcare team is a wonderful place to start. But many of you I know like to get information to bring to your healthcare team or just to have be able to absorb the, the the responses from your healthcare team. So I do always recommend contacting the National Cancer Institute. It's a credible, very reliable source, and you can contact them at 1-800-422-6237. 
and we'll be sending you those resources as well. So with the evaluations, you'll get that information again. And I also, for many of you, might like to contact their website as well, www.cancer.gov. And they have a wonderful live chat feature where you can post your question, and that's really good for people in the U.S. and internationally. So post your question, and within the information specialist, then will address your question. And I've actually done it myself often in trying to get information for our programs and planning things. Um, and it's a, uh, for a patient who has a question, it's a wonderful way to get information, very credible and very good information. We also, of course, are partnering today with the Kidney Cancer Association and Kidney Cancer Canada, and they also have a wonderful call center to contact as well as many of our other organizations that we're partnering with. Now, also, if you want to get some of the kind of practical or financial or emotional support or support group information, then I would suggest you contact Cancer Care. And you can simply call us at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, you can post a question on our website. You can actually um, contact us in that way as well for people who prefer to use, um, you know, particularly our international participants, but even those in the United States might like to do that as well. Or you can, for people in the U.S., you can simply call our 800 number and, of course, our Hope Line and speak directly with one of our oncology social workers. But either way, you will get a response from our oncology social workers and, and very thoughtfully. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I look forward to being on other programs that we offer. You'll be getting the schedule of that. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.